Sifter for the ear. News, interviews, reviews, cinema, TV, streaming. Action. Hi, y'all. This is Jerry Williams, a.k.a. TV Jerry. And this is my last show for two weeks. I'm going to take a little vacation, but actually I will be running two of the earlier, most popular shows on WRIR for the next two weeks. Meanwhile... But once you're on Pandora, every vehicle, whether it's the mining vehicles, the giant trucks, the vehicles that have propellers, which is the Dragon, the Samson, and the Scorpion, and then the robotic amp suit, I designed all of those vehicles over the course of about two years working directly with the director, uh, Jim Cameron. That's an excerpt from today's guest, Ty Rubin Ellingson, talking about working on the original Avatar. He's scheduled for this show because that groundbreaking film is being released Friday the 23rd, so people can catch up before the release of the long-awaited sequel in December. Ty Rubin was conceptual designer on that film, in addition to Jurassic Park, Star Wars A New Hope, and numerous other impressive credits. Currently, he's an associate professor in VCU's Communication Arts and the program director of VCU's cinema program. We're going to hear great stories from Ty Rubin in this interview, including an exclusive that he's never told anybody before. Sifter, review of the week. Good Night, Mommy on Amazon Prime Video. This is a remake of a 2015 Austrian film with the same name and plot. This is an excerpt of my review from that film, and it applies to this one that stars Naomi Watts in the title role. Quote, Two twin brothers enjoy an idyllic country summer until their mother comes home from cosmetic surgery and nothing seems right. Don't expect scares and shocks. Instead, this film is built on a creepy vibe that creates more concern than suspense. It's a psychological thriller with a twist that was obvious way before its reveal. The two boys, who are real twins, have a wonderful interaction that's continually compelling, but the payoff, although slightly disturbing, lacks punch. I gave it three out of five stars. Ty Rubin Ellingson, welcome back to Sifter. You were actually on as a surprise guest for Ann Chapman a few weeks ago. Indeed. I was happy to participate and and celebrate Ann Chapman's efforts with the VCU Cinema Program. Actually, I just got a text from her because she was at the Emmys with Erica Arvold, who was nominated for Dope Sick. Unfortunately, she didn't win, but they're out there looking fabulous. Anyway, I have to ask you first before we go any further. Your name is Ty Rubin. I'm sure you've never been asked before. What's the deal with that combo name? And do you go by Ty or Ty Rubin? You can call me Ty. I, I do get a kick out of people who call me Ty Rubin. I, actually, the cinema students, for some reason, have adopted Ty Rubin, and my com art students call me Ty. So it, it's <laughs> easier for me to tell them apart. But it's a simple story. Um, my father was an artist, and he was a very <clears throat> big fan of the artist Rubens. They had made a decision that if I was a girl, I was going to be named Tyler. And for some reason, when I came out as a boy, they quickly, my father said, what do we call him? Ty Rubens. And then my mom said, oh, maybe Ty Rubin. It's proven to be a very perfect name for me because it's memorable and it's unique. In fact, if you Google Ty Rubin, you really still only get me, which is pretty astonishing if you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, considering if you Google Jerry Williams, you probably get about two million names. I don't know. That's crazy. So what got you interested? Obviously, you just told me that your father was an artist. What got you interested in movies in the first place? Like every little kid, you know, I was fascinated with television. So I was always looking for cartoons. But somewhere along the line, I um, I happened across Boris Karloff Frankenstein movie, and that led me to The Mummy. And I became very interested in monster movies. 
But I would have to say that the thing that really cinched it for me was uh, going in 1968 to see um, Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh, yeah. And that kind of like blew my mind in such a profound way that I thought, man, I got to figure out what this is all about. I still remember seeing that. I was actually in Charlottesville living for one year and I saw it at a theater up there. And of course, it still it blew my mind, obviously. So what about effects? I know you obviously your, your career has been effects and design work. So how did that love for cinema pivot into that? Or is it just a coincidence? It's one of those stories that when you look at it from a historical percent perspective, I, I, it, it makes me look like I was quite genius in my planning for the future. <laughs> but, but it was far from that. I really was always gravitating towards opportunities that I found exciting. At the same time, you know, between my interest in 2001 and then, of course, the spectacular culture-shifting Star Wars film that came out in 1977, I really started to think somebody's behind the scenes figuring out how this stuff looks that's manufactured from scratch. And so I started filling out my portfolio with that type of work. And at the same time, I was just taking jobs. So I worked in an architectural office, and that allowed me to learn how to read plans. I worked as a model builder, and that taught me to learn how to do fabrication. And so at some point in my mid-20s, I started to think, you know, wow, I've, I've accumulated a lot of experience here. And if I put it all together in a package, it really looks like an entry-level visual effects person. And that's when I started looking for opportunities to connect with Industrial Light and Magic. I just flew out and interviewed, and, and they, they offered me a position, and, and that was that. Let's talk about Avatar, because the original is being re-released in preparation for the sequel in December. So what exactly was your job on Avatar? I came onto the show in 2006, and I was really um, charged with designing all the vehicles. My credit on the movie is vehicle designer. But once you're on Pandora, every vehicle, whether it's the mining vehicles, the giant trucks, the vehicles that have propellers, which is the dragon, the Samson, and the scorpion, and then the robotic amp suit, I designed all of those vehicles over the course of about two years working directly with the director, uh, Jim Cameron, uh, to make sure that they really matched his vision. And when you say you designed them, so you designed them, and obviously you said you know how to do architectural stuff. You don't just do a drawing and give it to somebody else and say, hey, you figure out how to fabricate it. You actually do a significant enough, detailed enough design that they can actually fabricate from your work, or does that still go to somebody else to do the technical? So we really worked the designs up from scratch all the way through to something that was exact in its proportion, in the requirements of what had to happen on the screen. And right, so right. those measured drawings and those three-dimensional models that were done digitally, and they built the practical sets and the practical environments, the cockpit environments, uh, based on these drawings. Your resume has got so many movies, Jurassic Park, Star Wars, and New Hope, The Flintstones, you mentioned, Casper, Blade 2, Hellboy, Mimic, Pacific Rim, Elysium, Chappie. Give us one or two cool stories about some of those. Yeah, there's so many good stories. I mean, one story that I like to tell students is the amount of work that you will put hours and hours of really dedicated time into only to find that it's uh, cut from the film. So, for example, on the movie Pacific Rim, I was asked to design several very complicated vehicles by the director, Guillermo del Toro. One of them was a submarine. Uh, one of them was like a giant welding machine that, that actually could crawl up girders and weld things. You know, they got all the way through to kind of proof of concept and the director signed off on them. And then you find out, oh, you know what, we're going to have to cut those. It was disappointing that those things didn't show up on screen. 
But on the other hand, I was so engaged in a passionate way in the creating of those things and working with this amazing director that in a weird part of my memory, it was like almost as good. And I think actors who have been cut from films, you know, you kind of feel like the experience in itself had a lot of value. At least that's the way that I see it. The disappointment's real, but the experience is um, also real. I have a really great story about working with George Lucas on the Star Wars re-release, the original Star Wars, but I can't tell it. Oh, uh, oh great. Thanks for that teaser. Yeah, I, know, I know. It's a great setup. But... <laughs> I want to ask you about another film. There's all these amazing science fiction films on your resume, and then there's Disclosure. Footnote. Disclosure is a 1994 thriller starring Michael Douglas and Demi Moore. I don't recall any special or any wild, crazy design effects in that. What was the uh, deal with that one? It's kind of a funny thing that you asked about it, because in certain circles, it actually affected a line of investigation, artistic investigation that I'll explain by telling you what I did. There's actually a sequence in the movie where Michael Douglas goes to this, actually a hotel room. And in this hotel room is a very early virtual reality setup. He then uses a computer to go into virtual reality. And what you see as the viewer is Michael Douglas's point of view. And so you see all this, this kind of static that coalesces into these objects that kind of unfold, you know, like an origami kind of a thing. Right. And, and it creates this interior space that looks like a giant cathedral of some kind. So this idea, Michael Crichton, of course, who also wrote Jurassic Park, had created this story revolving around the idea of virtual reality, which was still very, very new. So when I went to meet with the director, I suggested, what if it starts like that in a kind of very unbelievable way, but ends in something very understandable, except we, we play with the scale or we play with the curvature of the floor. And he responded very positively to the ideas. We developed the themes and the concepts, and it was done very quickly, but it, it actually is a pretty compelling sequence and the reason I said it had a lot of impact is years later, I was actually at a conference where I was talking to people developing virtual reality. And I mentioned something about, we did something about on that on disclosure. And they all knew the reference very immediately. Uh -huh. They all cool. had said, oh yeah, you know, we used to look at that because it really demonstrates the idea of a place being inside of a computer as opposed to just, you know, like data and management. Um, one last thing on disclosure, because you asked, not long before Disclosure went into pre-production or production, um, I had lost my father. He died very suddenly. Um, and when we worked on that uh, virtual reality sequence, and I don't think I've ever said this publicly, um, the artwork that hangs on the walls in this environment is my father's. Oh, cool. As these big paintings that were somewhat abstract, so it's not to distract the viewer and um, the producer, Kim Bromley, I said, can I put this stuff in there? And she goes, well, put it in and we'll see if the director likes it. And Barry Levinson, I didn't explain it to him. Right, I just sure. put it in there and he was, looks great. So I figured in that one, sh you know, in the first week that movie opened in the theaters, more people saw my father's artwork than it's been likely in his whole career. Wow, cool. So how long have you been at VCU? I arrived at VCU in 2013. I mean, you seem to be having a fun, cool, successful career out in L.A. doing all these cool movies. What made you think, I'm coming to little old Richmond and teaching these kids how to do it? It actually is a perfect segue and a perfect, I guess, sort of celebration of Avatar coming back into the theaters. Um, we were working out of the Lightstorm offices, which were in Santa Monica, California at that time. And Jim was extremely busy, the director, James Cameron. 
I was asked by the producer, would you mind meeting with Jim on Saturdays because it would help his schedule? And I said, of course, no problem. And I started to realize that there were like five of us who had worked both on Jurassic Park and on Avatar. And if I added to that, having worked on the special edition of Star Wars, there was really only me. And right. I really thought to myself, how did I do this? Like, how on earth did I, <laughs> how did I get from St. Cloud, Minnesota, which is north of Minneapolis? I lived in my parents' basement until I was 23 years old. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I didn't have a direct line to Hollywood. I had to find it on my own. I arrived in California at 30. And here I was working on the biggest movie in history. And I thought to myself, you know, if I could figure out how I did this, I bet I could help a lot of young artists and designers. And it was really VCU's Department of Communication Arts that was the magic bullet that got me to leave Hollywood and come into academia because they had this really interesting program that was based in illustration, but allowed for including things like concept design, allowed for character design and creature design. And it was really looking at the future in a way that I had responded to. A friend of mine who was on the faculty here, uh, uh, Matt Wallen, he sent me the job description and said, if you know anyone who's interested in this, please share it with them. And when I read it, I thought, wow, this is what I want to do. So I applied. I, the first time I was ever in Virginia, let alone Richmond, is when I flew in for my interview. And the next time I entered the state was the first time I drove in with my cats and my car. And it's been a really fantastic evolution in my life. I've been able to meet so many great people and work with so many fantastic students. And I, I moved into leadership. I was the chair of the department. And that led to me eventually becoming the director of the cinema program. And now I feel like I'm having a, a brand new opportunity working to help advance the cinema and, and move it into a, a direction that I think will help future students be, be successful. Surprise guest drop in. So who we got here, Ty oh, Rubin? Oh, oh, there's Matt Wallen. Footnote, Matt Wallen is currently a professor in VCU's Department of Communication Arts. Matt, thanks for joining us. Of course. Glad you were able to take care of your student first. We all had a little minor kerfuffle, but everything's under control now. Terrific, terrific. (laughs) I figured it wouldn't be too much of an issue because I know that my buddy Ty is uh, nothing if not (laughs) (laughs) long-winded. Ironically, we were talking a little earlier about VCU, and I asked him how he got here, and he mentioned your name, but he didn't blame it on you. You were actually the one that, y'all y'all <laughs> actually started together as friends out in L.A., correct? Yeah, Ty and I met back in, I think it was 1992, and I was a senior in my final year of film school from San Francisco State University, and I lucked out, and I scored an internship at Industrial Light and Magic, and it was in the art department. And on my first day there, I think, or maybe my second day there, I met Ty. And to his great credit, I think it says a lot about him. He, you know, saw this weird kid come in and he instantly came over and introduced himself and we became friends and really good friends and did a lot of fun projects together. But he was always the kind of guy who like he sees people who are new and he's always so like welcoming and open and engaging. Well, he's been a mentor to me. And over the years, I've learned he's been a mentor to so many people uh, in the business and certainly now at school with uh, so many students. Yeah, that's great to have that attitude to working with students. So what are some of the interesting things you can tell us about Ty Rubin, either from out in ILM or at VCU that would be kind of stimulating for our listeners to hear? Wow, there's just there's so many. 
Uh, <laughs> just pick the clean ones. This is going to be on the radio. So pick the clean one. You went over the story, I'm sure, about the famous Jurassic Park story. No, actually hasn't done that story. It's actually in the documentary, the six-part Disney documentary on the history of industrial light and magic. This event took place, I think, in 1991, probably, or maybe early 92. Jurassic was in production. Ty was there as the visual effects art director. And one of the things they had the artists do was practice being dinosaurs where they tried to get into the mindset of the character right, so they would right. run around and jump Little over short things legs and, and all that yeah and like just to kind of see like what does it feel like to be a dinosaur and they did a an action where everybody ran and jumped over like a, they set up like a pipe on right. you know and they everybody would jump over the pipe and like the gallimimuses in the herd sequence where they would jump over a log ty was the last person to go over the pipe and uh, he jumped over and he tripped and fell I was hoping you were going to say that. Ty's such an amazing athlete. You know, he's had a career <laughs> as a great as a great uh, sportsman for many De years. Desk jockey, he, huge right? Huge jock. But he tripped and fell. Yeah, and he broke his drawing arm, and he had to have surgery on his arm. And so the title of the last episode of the ILM documentary series is No More Pretending We're Dinosaurs. So uh -huh. that last episode is actually named after the incident in which Ty Rubin broke his arm, which was, you know, great consternation to the production. And people were like, oh, my God, you know, his drawing right. arm, his career. Right. <laughs> but he recovered, of course. Yeah. To the listeners, he did show us his uh, scar there. He still got the scar from the thumb. Well, Matt, I want to thank you for dropping in. It's been a great surprise for Ty Rubin. And we might have to get you on here one of these days <laughs> to tell some of your own stories. Oh, sure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jerry. And Thanks, Matt. Cheers, guys. So let me ask you, how do you feel about, you know, obviously with movies like, well, Jungle Book and Lion King, they were more creature CGI, but Soderbergh did a film last year where the whole thing was shot in a studio on green screen and he's had beaches. And so how do you feel about this prevalence and how it's changing the industry that, that CGI is suddenly creating environments and even people? I would ask the question, as we move further and further into digital production and synthetic production pipelines, what aspects of traditional filmmaking are important enough artistically, creatively, and, and even as a person, as a practitioner, of, uh, as an artist making films? What needs to be uh, embraced and not forgotten? You know, I'm a big fan of electronic music, and music production now is all mastered on digital uh, equipment. But you can still go hear a concerto with violins. You can still go, go hear somebody in a bar play the acoustic guitar and sing. You know, like we've, as human beings, we create space, in my view, for things that are important. And I suspect that there will be filmmakers that will gravitate towards um, real environments, real actors, real lenses. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, if you want to um, really stretch the audience, these digital tools can create things that change the relationship that um, the story has to both the people creating it and the audience. But there are also films like David Fincher is very much a, a genius filmmaker who uses digital effects extremely well. You never know they're even in his and film. Subtly, yeah, 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 yeah. And so I think that we're going to be in a in this kind of period of exploration and establishing new norms. I want to move to one of the other directors, Neil Blomkamp, who obviously has done Elysium and Chappie and District 9. And I know on your resume, it says some things about you did this, but it didn't happen. Are those gone forever? Or is that something that might be coming up? Or are you not allowed to talk about it? 
for a short period of time, Neil Blumkamp was going to be doing a Aliens movie. Right. It was right. based on the Ridley Scott and James Cameron Aliens. Right. But it was going to connect back to the original first two movies and basically disregard the latter Alien films. Right. Uh, everybody was very enthusiastic about it. I worked on it for about three months. And I can honestly say what he envisioned was just fantastic and amazing. And then at some juncture, uh, Ridley Scott, who had done The Martian the year before, which was kind of his return to science fiction and space filmmaking, I think really came up with a concept to revisit the Aliens universe, uh, Prometheus. And I think that what was originally told to Neil, the team that I was part of, was that it was they were going to put it on hold. I really think it was just within the last couple of years that Neil pretty much publicly said there's no chance that he will go back and do that. But I would say that hasn't happened that often to me until I moved to Richmond, which I, I don't connect it to. But I've worked, on, I've worked on at least five movies from Virginia that ultimately didn't get made. And in my previous whole career, I probably only worked on one. But you're still here. Yeah. No, I, I'm very much in, in academia now. I mean, I, I did a little bit of work for Neil, actually, this past December. It's, again, it's a project that's in development. It's in its okay. very early stages, and so I can't really mention it. How is AI figuring into design work for you at this point? I would invite all your listeners to do a little Googling on what would be called AI design or AI-enhanced design or AI-based design. And the, the programs that are easiest to locate, one of them is called Mid Journey, like the middle of a journey. Right. But there's another one called Dolly. And then there's another one called Stable Dis Diffusion. Um, these tools have been around for about a year. They're definitely on the exponential growth of what's happening in computing and artificial intelligence. Right. And right. they're starting to be powerful enough that you can actually create concept artwork, concept designs of a very finished nature, instead of using any kind of visual input, you use words. So right, you write right. descriptions. You know, so it could be like ice planet, giant uh, mechanical king and queen marching through a snowstorm. And it will try as best it can to generate that image. And it is so fast that it allows you to do a lot of trial and error and come up with some very, very compelling uh, results. So that's why I invite people to Google it, because you won't understand how advanced it's become unless you see it for yourself. I think the next skill that designers are going to have to really get their handle around is how do you curate mountains of work effectively? And how do you take things that matter from hundreds of choices and really pick the best sure, choices? Right, right, but it's, right. it's definitely much like our conversation about digital filmmaking. It's not going to go away. It's just out of the gate right now, and it's going to change going to grow. Yeah. a lot of things. I wanted to ask you about VCU. You've been there for a while now. Are Obviously, you're enjoying it, or you wouldn't still be there. What gives you the most pleasure about being there, working with the students? And probably you're going to say working with the students. Obviously, I do really take a great deal of joy out of uh, working with students and, and engaging with them, and especially learning about their worldviews in a very different time than well, it, it was. Yeah. It was very different today than it was when I arrived in 2013. Absolutely. I also enjoy, you know, like listening to their their what I call future vision, the things they want to accomplish, and and trying to focus on connecting today to those future versions of themselves, which I I use as part of my teaching philosophy. Is if you've met yourself 
from seven years in the future. Like if there was a time machine and seven years from now, that version of you could come back in time. Would you find them like amazing? Would you find them compelling? Like, yes, you know, and I think it's a good mental exercise. Another thing that I've been very fortunate with uh, the school is that prior to coming to VCU, I'd never had a job for more than five years. To my great surprise, about every five years, a new opportunity or uh, between three to five years, a new opportunity has arrived. So I started as a classroom instructor and then I became the department chair and that lasted about five years. And then I became the director of cinema. And this last year, I became a senior director and advisor to the dean. And so I've had new relationships with the school that have felt like new jobs. And the last question I always like to ask, what are you watching? And please don't tell me everything you watch is all science fiction. Tell me you love like romantic comedies or something strange that people wouldn't expect. No, there's a, there's a fantastic series. I, I think it's on Hulu and it's called Reservation Dogs. Oh, great. And, yeah. Yeah. And it's about the original people who live, uh, live on the reservation. It's a wonderful story in that the, the characters who live on the reservation, the Native American characters, are not treated as a subject. It's not, oh, wow, let's have a show about these first people of America. It's more, these are the lives of interesting people who are dealing with struggles and issues right. that we can all relate to. Another one that's really on that same level is Our Flag Means Death, which is a story oh, about pirates. God, I hated that. I thought I, I love Taika Waititi and yeah. I love most of his work, but I couldn't get past two episodes. I thought, this is just stupid. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, I mean, you go back and give it a revisit because I think it's a slow burn. I think you get to a place where you understand like the kind of parody of it and it starts right. to more uh, resonance to the characters. But, you know, things don't always click. Uh, Watiki is also involved in uh, Reservation Dogs as an executive. You're right. You're right. And also Um, one of the good shows that's fun to watch, probably watch too, What They Do in the Shadows. Oh, I love that show. Yeah. Yeah. The new episodes tonight, actually. So those are all connected to him. Did you love his uh, Screaming Goats? Did you see that yet? No, I haven't seen that one yet. Oh, the new Thor? That's It's just so crazy. He has these Screaming Goats all the way through the movie. Yeah, no, I've watched his other... pictures you know jojo rabbit i loved and um, he's a next level talent he's doing absolutely franchise i understand he's going to enter the star wars universe and so i just find it interesting when people can find fresh real estate in an area like filmmaking where it's so saturated and so many great films have been made well speaking of all that i want to thank you for sharing some of your innovations and some of your cool stories with us thank you the pleasure has been all mine That was Ty Rubin Ellingson talking about his work as a conceptual designer on numerous major science fiction films, including Avatar, which is being re-released in anticipation of the sequel in December. You can visit the webpage at tvjerry.com for links to those AI design sites and more. Coming soon in theaters. As we just discussed, Avatar, the original big grocer, is back in theaters in 2 and 3D as an appetizer before the sequel opens in December. Don't worry, darling. This movie's gotten more press about director Olivia Wilde and Harry Styles. It's kind of a Stepford Wives set in the 50s. Moon Age Daydream is not really a biographical documentary, but a look at David Bowie's art and music. Railway Children a remake of the popular British film about three children who are evacuated to a small village during World War II. Blonde, Ana de Armas stars in a fictionalized take on Marilyn Monroe's life and career. On the Come Up, about a young rapper following in her father's steps. TV and streaming. 
Andor on Disney Plus. Diego Luna returns as Cassian Andor in this Star Wars series. Meet Cute on Peacock. Pete Davidson and Kaylee Cuoco star in a rom-com with a Groundhog's Day twist. Abbott Elementary on Fox and Hulu returns for season two and a full 22 episodes. A Jasmine's Blues, Tyler Perry's latest for Netflix, looks at 40 years in the life of an aspiring jazz singer, starring theater VCU graduate Joshua Boone. Sydney on Apple Plus, a documentary on Sydney Poitier. The Munsters on Netflix. This is a prequel to the original sitcom with Rob Zombie directing. That's all for this week. I'll be back in two weeks with a visit with Ray Bentley, who was the Midnight Movie Machine way back in the 70s. And you can subscribe to this podcast on most of the popular services. Just visit tvjerry.com, click on the podcast tab, and there's a link. This is Jerry Williams. Thanks for listening. For more sister, including literally thousands Thousands of reviews, reviews, visit tvjerry.com. That's a wrap.